The effects of anthropogenic climate change are ramping up. The record for hottest ever day in terms of global average air temperature has been broken three separate times during 2023 alone. As the scale of this problem has become clearer, more and more energy has been put into developing interventions, either to reduce fossil fuel emissions or, in some cases, remove them from the atmosphere after the fact. But which of those interventions actually have the potential to turn the tide in our fight against global heating, and which are all talk and no substance? In order to put some of the more intriguing projects to the test, I called up science communicator and atmospheric physicist Dr. Simon Clark. Hello, Simon Clark. Uh, welcome to the show. How, how are you today? I'm all right, thank you, Tom. I, I've got a day where I'm doing an awful lot of video editing. I'm doing a lot. I'm spending a lot of my time in Blender today, so this is a lovely reprieve. <laughs> a nice okay, sort of getting to talk to another human being is a good. Uh, break yeah, I feel a bit like Robin Williams and Jumanji. You know, <laughs> like I spent so long without human contact. <laughs> Well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try and re-socialize you um, as best I as best I can. <laughs> um, so I've, I've invited you here today as one of YouTube's premier uh, climate science communicators. Um, I think there is a certain uh, hubris attached to being a guy with a podcast. Um, mm. uh, I think uh, Lex Friedman recently announced he was going to go to uh, Palestine and Israel to kind of sort that out. Um, so I decided, <laughs> I decided that what climate change needed was a good podcast episode. Yeah, uh, two white dudes talking about climate change. We will get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I thought sort of in a tidy hour we could probably just sort it. How hard can it be? So I have, I have invented uh, a sort of. It's not quite a game show, although I did get creative. And if anyone's just listening, I've, I've got uh, flashcards that I've made um, and each of these has a uh, climate intervention on it that I'm hoping that you can use your expertise to uh, kind of rate on a kind of very useful to kind of white elephant sort of scale. I, okay, I right. I tried to come up with a fun name for this um, and I sort of started with... Uh, hot or not and then i decided that because i was like oh climate you know global warming yeah um but then i realized that was going to be quite complicated because if the hot was... ones are the ones that don't work yeah so i, I was sort of unsure where <laughs> where that went so i if anyone if, pe people who are listening or watching please uh write in with potential names for a uh climate intervention themed game show how dare you use out of 10 something like that <laughs> But um, uh, but yes, are you are you, are you ready for this, Simon? I'm sitting comfortably. Okay, so I have I have six on me, okay. um, uh, all of which I believe you've talked about at least a little bit on your channel in the past. Yeah, um, some more than others. Some more than others. Um, and I'm going to start uh with social radiation management. No, that's definitely solar radiation management. Solar rate is oh, we're off to a brilliant start. <laughs> this is this is a fantastic start to this episode. Um, <laughs> Social radiation. I don't even know what that's. That's that noise. Is that noise pollution? Uh, that sounds like a kind of pandemic thing. I think social mm. radiation, like that, would be a thing they're trying to. We must stop the social radiation. <laughs> um, 
that that's why you're here as 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 our as our sort of expert correspondent is to tell me <laughs> to, when to, I to pick up word. minor mis- misprints <laughs> on the cards. <laughs> okay, so our first intervention that I'd like to talk about is uh, solar radiation management. Right. So. When we're talking about um, the climate crisis and the fact that the Earth is getting hotter, it comes down to an energy imbalance. So the reason the Earth is getting hotter is because there's more energy coming in than there is leaving. And the reason there's less energy leaving is because there's more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It traps long wavelength radiation, stops it from getting out to space. So there are different ways that you can approach that problem, one of which is to increase the amount of energy that's leaving the planet, which would be removing carbon from the atmosphere or some other kind of technology like that. The other half of the solution would be reduce the amount of energy that's coming in. And that's what solar radiation management is. You are blocking out portions of the sun. And if you are anything like me, you immediately think of the Simpsons episode, Who Shot Mr. Burns? Yes. Okay. With the big, the big uh... mankind's greatest enemy, the sun, the umbrella that covers, <laughs> um, which would be a local solution. Uh, the kind of solutions that we typically talk about on a global level are a bit more grandiose. Uh, some of them are truly bonkers. Some of them that have been seriously looked at by engineers are genuinely mad. Like, for example, putting huge lenses between the Earth and the sun to refract some of the sunlight away or putting giant mirrors in space to accomplish the same thing, which is a little bit more realistic, I think. Um, But the most common way that people try to do this or talk about doing this is stratospheric aerosol injections. So to break that down, the stratosphere is the best layer of the atmosphere. Fight me. Uh, It's what I did my PhD on. Uh, And it basically is the layer between about 10 and about 50 kilometers above the surface. Um, And it's a layer that is defined by being quite static in a vertical sense. Like if you put something up in the stratosphere, it takes a long time for it to come out, basically. In the lower part of the atmosphere, there's lots of vertical motion. You see it in clouds all the time. Um, the, The actual definition between the two is to do with how stuff moves around vertically. So if you put something in the stratosphere, it stays there for a long time. The aerosols refers to any any small particle that gets suspended in the air. So the typical way we use it in, you know, modern English is referring to like spray cans. But in a scientific sense, it can refer to pollen, uh, soot, uh, sea salt, uh, or artificial deliberately created aerosols, such as uh, titanium dioxide. That's a very common one that people talk about in this context, which is a very white reflective um, powder. It's actually a food additive. Um, It's E171, I think. And it used to be the M on M&Ms was made out of this stuff. Titanium uh, M&Ms. Yeah, but it, it was, it's was it been banned in the EU now because they couldn't prove it was safe, I think. and Not that it, it wasn't safe, but they couldn't prove that it was safe. Whatever, EU things. Um, uh, and so that's like a mineral that the people propose to inject into the stratosphere uh, to reflect some of the sunlight away, which is one of these solutions that is, on the one hand, tempting, and on the other hand, kind of like horrifying because it would be very easy to do. Like... Elon Musk could just decide tomorrow, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to construct a fleet of aircraft that are going to spray titanium oxide into the stratosphere. Quite difficult to stop him. And similarly for you know a bunch of other Bond villains, you know the bunch of the billionaire class could just decide to do this. Um, so and Mr. we are Mr. Burns thing was was kind of again a billionaire villain. Um, 
And the, the thing is, we know we can be very confident that it would reduce global average temperatures. It would reduce the amount of energy that's coming in. But it's like kind of opening Pandora's box. Um, I actually spoke to a uh, the head of a geoengineering research charity recently, and he said to me outright, no one in their right mind would want to do this. This is an insane technology. No one should do this. But, and this is where, and I hadn't considered this before, he put it as a trolley problem. It's not a question of, you know, if, if, if the climate was absolutely fine, why would you want to do this? We know mm. that the climate isn't fine, and we know that there are lots of impacts that are coming down our way. But how bad do those impacts have to be for the potential impacts of this technology to be worth it? And depending on who you are and where you live and what you think is important, there are many different levels of where you think it's acceptable to start using this. Personally, I, I think it's I think it would have to be almost apocalyptic for this to be the better option. When I was preparing for this, I went to uh, I, I was on a I think it's a sort of U.S. government think tank. Uh, mm. And I was, you know, trying to sort of keep an open mind about all these things, trying to kind of absorb the uh, all the positives of ones that I felt maybe had, you know, maybe, maybe weren't quite there. And the sort of, you know, look at the sort of drawbacks of some of the ones that I was uh, feeling more positive about. Um, and uh, the page that I found on solar radiation management, which uh, was, yeah, a sort of U.S. government think tank, began with solar radiation management is an idea born of desperation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, and and to be clear, the the reason why we they think the impacts might be terrible is because we simply don't know what some of the impacts would be. So there's large error bars and everything, which is scary in itself. But we can be very confident that it would impact, for example, photosynthesis, because there are basically two kinds of sunlight. You've got direct light and scattered light, kind of specular light. And um, different species of plants photosynthesize those two kinds of light differently. And when you put a bunch of aerosols in the atmosphere, you're reducing the amount of direct light and increasing the amount of scattered light. And that's like fundamentally shifting the bedrock that the global ecosystem is based on. We don't know what the impacts of that would be. And we don't know what the knock-on effects would be on, for example, precipitation patterns, you know, changing where rainfall occurs or where regional temperature changes occur, or basically taking a huge complicated system and just shaking it really hard. That's kind of what SRM is. Like, you know, we know in, in theory it works and there's a natural analog to it that, you know, that basically we're mimicking what happens after large volcanic eruptions. Like mm. in 1991, Mount Pinatubo erupted and that injected a bunch of um, sulfur dioxide, which is another one of these potential aerosols we could use into the stratosphere. And that cooled the planet by about half a degree Celsius for nearly two years. So, you know, top level it works, but it's then all of these knock-on effects that the the error bars are so large and on the upper end the potential damage is so horrific that you're looking at this trolley problem as right there's five people tied to the tracks down here and there's anything between four and 20 people on this other track do i pull the lever and one my understanding is that once you sort of start doing it you might just be locked into just sort of doing that now forever yeah, so effectively what you're trying to do is change the radiative balance, to use the technical, technical term, of the Earth. You're trying to change the net in-out energy balance. And over the course of a couple of centuries, we have changed it. And we've changed it, you know, the order of... Actually, I can't remember. Hang on, let me look that up, because that is an important statistic. Net radiative imbalance. Uh, sorry, I was going so well. Okay. Uh, oops. 
about half a watt. Is that right? Yeah, okay. So our current net energy imbalance is about half a watt. And we've got to that half a watt per square meter uh, over about 250 years. By putting solar radiation management into place, you're lowering that number. Ideally, you'd make it actually negative. So you'd start to cool the planet down. But if you stop doing it, yeah, the stuff stays around in the stratosphere for a couple of years. But you would then potentially have the same change in net radiation that we experienced over centuries in decades. And the impact of that on the planet would be absolutely catastrophic. We, I don't think, I'm not sure how many studies have actually been done on what the impacts would be, but, you know, I can tell you right now it would be bad. Mm. So, um, so, so, because you're potentially still building up CO2 in the atmosphere, you're not actually yes. pausing, the, uh, pausing the, the problem. So if you suddenly, if, if one day someone sleeps in and forgets to maybe not that you know if if something happens and the plane <laughs> that was me today <laughs> yeah. oh damn it but like if something happens and, and the planes can't fly for i don't know six months or something suddenly it catches up really quickly yeah and and so that's what's called the termination shock problem um and you know there are ways to mitigate that you could gradually wind it down it's not an insurmountable problem but as you say by doing it you're also basically putting a sticking plaster over like a broken leg like you're dealing with the surface level damage but you're not actually fixing the main problem and yeah co2 keeps building up in the atmosphere which has all these other negative imp impacts on human health on ocean acidification on well, we can talk about this more with the later solution i'm sure um but the other problem that i think is most troubling is who gets to decide how much aerosol goes into the stratosphere? Hmm. Who gets to pick the number? Because you only get one number, which is the dial of how much cooling or warming you're experiencing. And if you asked, say, Russia, you know, they might prefer a bit of warming because it's going to make some land more arable, for example. But if you ask, say, someone from Ghana, they would probably like it to be quite significantly lower. Um, realistically it would be determined by global politics and so mm. there would be different people fighting for control of that one dial and that's a recipe for potential disaster so in a way it's concentrating all of this power into literally one number which you have direct control over which to me is p potentially the largest reason to not do it mm. because because i guess sort of other interventions there are kind of geopolitical consequences or i guess like if if we suddenly were completely on um if europe was completely on renewables uh russia might be annoyed that we're not buying yeah. all their oil like there's that stuff but i guess if you're if spraying stuff into the atmosphere and suddenly it or, or the rain disappears from another country that suddenly becomes a much more kind of direct yeah the, the dynamics of it feel much more like this country has done something to that country. If, if the Security Council, for example, votes that we're going to put it at this number and it changes the precipitation patterns and suddenly all of China is in drought, you know, what does China do? China, of course, has an obligation to its citizens. What's the mm. correct way to resolve that? And, you know, it is the, it, it pretty much it's very difficult to imagine a scenario in which somebody significant, a significant group of people will not be uh, mm. 
negatively impacted by a choice of how you use this technology. So it's it's and it's a very scary thing. You know, it's one of these technologies. I say as I say that could just be used. Uh, it's it wouldn't be terribly expensive. The engineering exists for it. The science is ongoing about its impacts. Um, there are plenty of studies that have been done, for example, on how it would affect agricultural yields. And the answer is, as always, it's complicated. Um, but it, it's something that yeah, we could just do tomorrow. And personally, I find it one of the scariest, if not the scariest, way of combating climate change because because of that and because of the huge uncertainties associated with it. So our summary is that it works, but... Yeah, but in in bold, <laughs> like several ellipses afterwards. So we're putting this on our probably not pile. That's the That, that of all the ones I think we're going to talk today uh, is probably not. <laughs> okay, this is... Simon is grounding the planes. Um, turn around, everyone. <laughs> Take the little masks off. We're setting the baseline. That's what um, we're doing. We're, we're, you know, we're setting the, the bottom. Top Gun 3 is not going to be about um, spraying... Uh, Tom Cruise <laughs> runs his way to fixing climate change. Okay, okay. Uh, card number two, uh, or sort of paper number two, um, is heat pumps. Heat pumps. Okay. Which we I feel like I've heard a lot more of, like, it's one of those things that I, I maybe a year, sort of 18 months, maybe a year ago, I'd heard very little about, and suddenly, you know, not everyone's talking about heat pumps, but I've heard a lot more conversation about heat pumps than I had previously. And I think a lot of that has actually to do with geopolitics, to do with, um, to, to break up in your previous point, because... Um, as in the UK, we are, I think it's 80% of our heating and cooling, like actual household heating is, is natural gas. Or it's just gas. Natural gas is like kind of a greenwashing campaign by oil producers, but that's a, that's another debate. Um, you, you know, it's, it's supplied by gas. And so in the aftermath of the, the invasion from Russia, we really exposed just how vulnerable we were in that sector. Mm. Yes, I, th I think it's 40% off the top of my head of UK gas comes from Russia. So it's not a total monopoly. But it exposed an insecurity. And the thing with heat pumps as a technology is it doesn't really care where you get your electricity from. As long as you can supply a heat pump with electricity, it will heat your house. And so that means that you actually improve your um, energy security as a nation. So in the UK, for example, if you have extensive wind power, you've got control over where your electricity comes from. Uh, at the moment, we're still very dependent on uh, other places, especially France. We import a lot of energy from France. So as long as as long as long England doesn't fall out with France, which has never happened before, we should be fine. Uh, There's been a big pause button on that one, at least. It's a been, big you know... pause button. Agincourt was so long ago. Um, but uh, so, so to explain what a heat pump is, basically um, a, a gas boiler, which is what most people have in the UK to heat their houses, is you burn gas, you take the heat from that burning and use it to heat water. That goes into your radiators. Whereas a heat pump is literally a fridge just in reverse. Instead of taking heat out of a box and putting it into the environment, you are sort of sucking heat from your environment and putting it into the box. That's a super simple version of it. And I'm not an engineer. This isn't my, my specialism. There are different ways of drawing that heat from the ground or from the air, but they are a very mature technology. They have been around for decades. They are just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, and the reason that they're a fan, th this is a fantastic one, by the way, with this, I'm going to put my card on the table. This is a great we love heat solutions. pumps. We love heat pumps because in the Western world, if it, I mean, let me, let me ask you, if I, where do you think you use most of your energy? If we're talking about like transport, electricity, heating, you know, the, the whole kit and caboodle, where does most of it go? Oh, interesting. Um, I would say, I, I guess I work from home most of the time, so that and and cycle when I, most of the time when I don't, that probably affects things. So 
Uh, I mean, I would say electricity because I feel like I'm quite stingy with the heating. But I feel right. like... <laughs> well, I mean, for the average person, because you are probably right, it's going to be different for everyone, but for the average person, 50% of the energy we use goes into heating and cooling. Yeah. So it's it's a colossal amount of our energy as individuals, mm. if you want to look at it through that lens. And so the reason it's such a fantastic solution is because it's a big chunk of the personal pie that you can remove dependence on fossil fuels and you can electrify. Um, there are a lot of problems with how you practically accomplish that, because as with so many of the of, of climate solutions, it's great on paper, but you've actually got to make it practically work. And that proves a bit more difficult. Um, in particular, the way that it works, as I said, is it's a fridge. You're converting electricity into heat, you know, or, or, or lack of heat. You can you can do it both ways. Um, and uh, this is another example of why electricity that we need to decarbonize electricity supply because yes we use electricity for you know powering computers and everything like that but also we can use it for these other sectors but that only works as decarbonization if your electricity is low carbon so that's the first kind of check right you're sure you want to install a heat pump where does your electricity come from mm. let's bring the carbon cost of that down the second thing is um in order for them to work you have to use a refrigerant like you do in a fridge and i actually made a video about this quite recently um about how the, there is an international collective called Project Drawdown, which we'll probably talk about more later, um, that ranks climate solutions uh, in terms of the impact, how many tons of carbon dioxide you can stop being emitted to the atmosphere. And they estimate that the number one way you can reduce emissions is by changing what refrigerants we use, which is mm. kind of insane. Um, but the, the reason for that is even though there's not very much gas in a fridge or in a heat pump, the global warming potential of the gases that we currently use, which are called HFCs, is tens of thousands of times greater than an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. And so what we're currently using, and has actually now been phased out under an amendment to the Montreal Protocol, um, these, these HFCs, is being replaced by things like propane. Um, there are other gases that you can sort of sub in for, for these very polluting gases. And just as a minor side note, it only works if we don't just throw away the old ones, you actually have to destroy them rather than just chucking your fridge into landfill and being like, well, we replaced it. We've done our, we've done our job. So the other check is if we're going to build uh, a heat pump, you've got to use a refrigerant that's environmentally responsible, that it's got a low kind of global warming potential. So that's another stumbling block, which is being overcome. And there are safety concerns with that, but that's, that's again, the whole other discussion. The biggest problem is that you've, if you want to get the whole of the UK, for example, off of gas boilers and onto heat pumps, you've got to source that electricity from somewhere. And it, there's a there's a famous anecdote about how the national grid has to account for, like in the I think it's the FA Cup final, in the halftime break, everyone puts the kettle on at once, and there's an enormous spike in electricity usage in the country. Imagine that, but for these really electricity intense heat pump units everywhere when there's a, a cold spell and that is a, a huge demand on the national grid so if this only works as a solution if it's rolled out in conjunction with strengthening the stability of the national grid which is something that has its own challenges when we're introducing lots of renewables for example into the grid um but it's not insurmountable it's something that can be overcome with um effective investments and especially connecting national grids together so you can all sort of draw on each other's supply but that is a significant disadvantage to the technology so it's not like all sunshine and rainbows but this is up there this this for me is one of the solutions that i wish people would talk about more it's just a question of 
plotting the course for introducing it as a solution that that navigates all those significant bumps in the road. Yeah, my my understanding is also that that with having heat pumps, sort of insulation is is it more important that you've got a well insulated house, or is it that it's it becomes just more worth doing if you make sure houses are insulated first. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. Um, again, not really my specialism, but I believe that because of the the, the nature of the technology, I think I think this might be it could be. I'm probably I'm wrong, but it's um, it is a little bit slower, I think, than gas fired boilers. And so, if you're leaching energy out of the house, you might not be able to keep up with that there's a huge asterisk on that i mean i'm quite possibly wrong i do know that that is a consideration though that makes sense because so my my house isn't particularly well insulated and back in the winter where like uh heating got really really expensive there was a uh martin lewis kept talking about if you turn your um boiler down to what is it like 55 degrees rather than 65 degrees it means that it uses the sort of condensing stuff much better uh, and it will take longer to warm up, but then it will, you know, it will be all right after a while. Whereas mm. our house is a bit too leaky for that to work. So that would that would okay. uh, make a lot of sense. I would like it if we all had fridge doors as front doors. That'd be fun. oh, that'd be nice. Um, with the little like the little like uh, I don't know what you call it, the kind of soft bits around the edges. Oh um, yeah, like the cushioning. It, it would also mean that you know we could all pretend to be Indiana Jones surviving nuclear blasts, bursting out get every home. morning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I feel like the, I feel like the uh, grid is something that's maybe going to come up again in a second because there's there's a big push to like smarten the national grid as well, isn't there? So that it's better at knowing yeah. what needs to be where at different times. It I think something that um, comes up because obviously when when you talk about this stuff online, you do get a lot of people commenting uh, with with various takes on it. Some of which are helpful, some of which aren't. I think a lot of people seem to assume that the the grid is like a very simple thing. And mm. it's like a single number. There's this much juice in the country and the number goes up or down. And um, I've, I've only spoken to a few professionals who work in sort of energy stability and energy grids. It's a hugely complicated subject. Mm. And there are so many different aspects of energy storage, energy importing, you know, down to the level of something like frequency load matching. Like if you're trying to introduce solar power from different houses into the grid, you've got to match the your you know, 50 hertz has to be the same as R50 hertz or, or whatever it is. Like, it's a vastly complicated um, edifice. And there's a lot that we can do to improve its stability. And I think it's one of those rare cases where actually the machine learning hype might be onto something. Like, that, that's a significant tool that you can use to improve how efficiently the, the, the grid works. But yeah, I'm sure this will, we'll talk about it more with other solutions. One of my favorite kind of engineering things, which is really impressive how, for how, I mean, I'm sure it's not simple, but how simple the sort of theory of it is. And I think there's a Tom Scott video about this is the way they, when they've got too much energy in the grid, I think there's a place in Scotland where they do it and they like pump up the water yes. up into a reservoir. Pumped hydro it, storage. And just use it as a massive battery. Um, well, that's the thing. I, that is the, the the first form of storage that a grid would like to use. Everyone sort of seems to think that, like, but if, if you install this many wind turbines, you've got to have these warehouses full of like double A rechargeable batteries, and like, no, they they use these enormous reservoirs. And and also, I don't know if you saw there was I can't remember the name of this. There was the concept where these tech bros basically came up with like, why don't we store electricity in like concrete blocks? And like you winch them up to a higher level when you've got lots of electricity, and then you release them when you know you uh, when when you want to use the electricity. And it's like 
my brother in Christ, you've invented a dam. <laughs> I just like the fact that that has an added level of kind of Looney Tunes uh, kind of <laughs> <heroin> to it. <laughs> yes. I mean, which I guess you could have with the dam, you could, but like, it just really feels like block falling from great height onto yeah. people. You'd want a sticker today. of Wiley Coyote underneath each block. Okay, so heat pumps are on our sort of very good pile. Very good pile. Very happy. I'm doing this like I've got some incredible <laughs> setup with like a top-down camera, which I don't. To- I'm thinking of the. I'm keep thinking of Simpsons analogies, but this is the crusty the clown. I heartily endorse this event or product. <laughs> um, okay, next up on my card uh, is electric cars. Okay, electric cars are a really interesting one um, because it's a very common talking point on both sides of the debate about electric vehicles, um, and I'm going to basically. I'll put my cards on the table at the start and then I'm going to take a dinner plate sized asterisk and put it next to my hand of cards, which is to say, I think they're not a great climate solution, but so the reason that I actually tell you what, let's talk about the positives first. So transport is a huge part of emissions. I think it's one sixth of global emissions, depending on who you ask. And the largest part of that is road vehicles, meaning cars, but also trucks and everything Mm. like that. And so, yeah, if you want to bring down emissions in every sector, you've got to tackle transport, you've got to tackle road vehicles. And in a large number of cases, electrifying road vehicles makes perfect sense. Uh, The angle that interestingly, a lot of people have been sleeping on, I think, and don't seem to realize is as significant as it is, is freight transport. So Mm -hmm. meaning freight being transported between cities, via trucks, but also freight moving within a city. Um, And actually, if you read the International Transport Forum's latest analysis on how to decarbonize the sector, they make a really big deal about electric bikes and electric bike delivery for last mile, um, as well as lots of interesting things, because I I made a video about this as well um, quite recently, uh, about how you decarbonize transport. And in order to make that video, I had to take this 250-page document and like ring it. Like again, this is the Simpsons analogies. It's like taking all those oranges and getting a single drop of orange juice out of. It's whisper quiet. Um, but I couldn't put all these caveats in. And one of the interesting things was like, yeah, you can use electric vehicles and electric bikes, but actually, a significant saving is just making your systems more efficient and having mm. unified drop-off points for different companies. So like, it's not all about electrifying freight and vehicles. I think it's I was... a big part. I was reading about that with food delivery. Um, so we get a uh, veg box, not for all our veg because it's a bit pricey, but for sort of every other week we get we get a veg box. Um, and uh, I was reading that some of that, that you know, th- this company tries to be nice and environmentally friendly as possible. And some of that comes, the, the sort of furthest away one of their farms is, is in France, I think. Uh, mm. But they were talking about how even though that some of it comes from France and comes over, that bringing it over in a lorry, the benefits from compared to freighting something from another country um, mm. via either ship or by plane are huge. And actually, they can save a huge amount by making sure that, which I think is what you were just saying, that the lorry is full when it goes the other way. Like you've yes. instantly then you've halved the even even if you're using um, uh ice vehicles that you you've instantly sort of halved the carbon emissions if you just make sure there's never an empty one going back just to pick stuff up to come back again it's like how they used to say that logistics win wars 
And mm. I feel like it's also a huge part of, of climate solutions that gets overlooked. Like, yeah, it's all well and good. And especially considering the society we live in, we focus on technological solutions and this innovation, or it could be solar panels or it could be fusion or whatever it is. And people ignore the fact that actually the systems that we use and food is actually the really big example are just so they're efficient in the wrong metric. Like they're efficient in terms of getting food to us as quickly as possible, but they are horrifically inefficient when it comes to food waste. Mm. And that has an enormous carbon cost associated with it in terms of just food degrading and emitting carbon into the atmosphere. That's actually to refer to Project Drawdown again is one of the other. I think it might be the like number two, number three um, uh, greatest way to reduce emissions is just make food systems more efficient. Which is again slightly mind, but I'd highly recommend Project Drawdown. They, they have a great website that anybody can can Google, and they have all of these solutions ranked with all the all the information there. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. Um, Science tier list. <laughs> I tried a tier list video once, you know, and it didn't. I think I I I made a cloud tier list, and people got really angry that I ranked <laughs> fog lowly. People were like, "Fog gang," were coming after me on on Twitter. And and Discord and stuff like that. Sort of fog lovers. It's a shit it, cloud. I'm sorry, but it is. <laughs> maybe these are people that live somewhere that's really flat. And so if you go on a walk, you can see all the way and it makes it really boring. And so they uh, want a okay. bit of fog to sort of make the journey more interesting because you can only see a certain distance around you. It's kind of Wuthering Heights-esque people. <laughs> <laughs> that's their sort of just their vibe. Anyway, I've digressed once again. Um, so yeah, the, the, the thing with electric uh, electrification of road vehicles, yeah. So freight is actually very, very important. Electric cars will be very important in certain places. So the thing, if, if people don't want to watch my video, I can't blame you. Uh, the big takeaway, which I'll give you is if you want to electrify transport, you can't have a one size fits all approach. It has to be super granular in terms of geography, in terms of demographics of where you're looking at. And Electric cars will work very well in rural areas. When you have low population density areas, it's not sufficient to merit trains, for example. Um, there are very few systems that are better than having a privately owned vehicle. And in that case, electrify it. Fantastic. For people who live in densely populated areas, like you know, within cities, a lot of people don't need a car all the time. And I think this is why I'm saying it's a bad intervention with a big asterisk, because yes, they're important in some ways, but I think by focusing on just taking our existing transport system and electrifying it, you are missing out on far more efficient and far lower carbon transport modalities. So you're missing out on investing in public transport. Um, you know, you are missing out on investing in cycle infrastructure. Just because we do things with cars now doesn't mean that it's the best way to do it. It might have been the best way a couple of decades ago, but that's not necessarily going to be true now. And I know you had not just bikes on as a yeah, previous yeah, yeah, guest. Yeah. So you probably heard all of this before, but like there's a certain amount of fetishization of private car ownership and people get super defensive about it. And we're seeing it in the UK at the moment, actually. There's been like a big pushback from people like the, so I say people uh, like reptile corporations like the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph who are pushing for like, you know, all oh, the public's not sure about net zero. We want to own our own cars. Um, and, uh, you know, some people do, some people are really passionate about it, but the fact is private car ownership for a lot of people isn't necessary with a capital N it's nice with a lowercase N, but like 
there are car sharing opportunities. And yeah, sure. In that case, yeah, electrify your vehicles. Great. Have a, have a, a shared pool of electric vehicles. But just taking our existing transport system and more so in places like America than the UK and electrifying it is not the right way to go about transforming the transport sector, in my opinion. Every so often I think about, I think about this with um, uh, sort of driverless cars as well as electric cars. The kind of Henry Ford thing about the, um, the faster horse where he sort of mm. said, you know, if I asked people what they'd wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. That a lot of these interventions, which sort of are cars, but a bit different, feel like yeah. because they're the, they're they're someone looking at what you've already got and going, what's the next step of that, rather than going, how do you reinvent this in a way that is not just a step, but is just sort of better, I guess. And- a quote I heard years ago now that's really stuck with me is that we're all prisoners of our previous reference points. And, and it's so true because like, if you grow up in a city, like say if you grow up in um, an incredibly urbanized place in, in, in America and there's no public transport available, you have to use a car. Like that's the only mode of transport that you know works. And so you have to have that. But if you grow up somewhere I mean, I t- I, we give the, the capital a, a lot of crap, but like, I actually think London's very good for public transport. Like, Londoners have fantastic options for, you know, the tube, for buses, for cycle lanes, and everything like that. And um, I just looked it up. Fifty-four um, percent of London households own a car, or at least one car. So it's actually not a terribly high percentage compared to i'm sure if you ask people in american cities it'd be so much higher and it's only when you see that yeah this public transport thing actually works i don't need to own a car that you would consider ever selling yours so it's like it's a bit of a positive feedback leap i think but like we get stuck in this is the way that we do things we always had horses i need a i need a bigger stable i need a faster horse like yeah you've got to someone's got to show you and someone's got to be brave and take that first step and actually something that i learned in researching the um uh, transport video is that actually places in South America and places in the global south have been really innovative when it comes to transport and and mm. experimenting with different modes and doing hybrid types of transport where you can get off of one form and get onto another one to bridge different distance scales and actually those are the places where we can take a lot of lessons from there is a real kind of uh, locked in thing where it's sort of logistical but also kind of cultural there I think because yeah I I don't know I learned to drive when I was 17 but then didn't have a car of of my own until uh, sort of late 20s we're just um for all kinds of reasons we were sort of moving around it didn't always make sense where we were um cars are expensive um and therefore now we have one because my partner needs it for work but it means that it's always an option rather than a yeah the the way i kind of view it is that oh, oh yeah i guess we could drive um but would still get the bus or would still cycle um like these are options in front of me rather than, you know, I, I, I know friends and family members who, who would just be like, yeah, I would drive. What, what are you talking Like, would, would not even, there wouldn't even yeah. be a process of thought. Well, because I'm, I'm still in the, the queue for getting a driving test post COVID. I've, I've been on my provisional license for like 16 years now. Uh, and I, I bought an electric bike a couple of years ago. And that's my mm. primary mode of transport now. And I think if I hadn't had this period of, you know, if there's something that's within 10 or 20 kilometers of here, I'll just cycle. Like, mm. as long as mm. it's not absolutely hammering down with rain. But it, yeah, you're right. It presents it to yourself as an option in your brain. And I think if if I had the car now, I'd be like, well, you know, if it was terrible weather, sure, I'd, I'd drive. But like, actually, my default now, because it's what I have been doing, mm. is 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 taking an electric vehicle, or taking an electric bike. There's a joke in there somewhere about what I have been doing an electric 
and uh, but I can't, I can't make it. There's the bits of a joke to assemble. It's just a means-powered bike, <laughs> a more powerful one. So electric cars, where are these going? I've got heat bumps. I've got. Are they sort of going in the middle? They're in the middle. I, it's a complicated one. They're not so, blocking out the sun. They're not blocking out the sun. I'd say it, they're slightly on the the bad end of the spectrum. If I had to tweak them one way, but not by much. I've only got about thirty centimeters here to play with, and, and the, the paint. It's all right. Just don't need to show off. <laughs> that was a different kind of podcast suddenly. Um, uh, okay, next up on my list uh, is direct air carbon capture. Okay, so direct air carbon capture. This is um, the other because people group um, solar radiation management and direct air carbon capture into geoengineering as like a kind of a big mm-hmm. umbrella term. Um, and this is to go back to what I was talking about with solar radiation management. This is the other side of the solution. Instead of reducing the amount of energy coming in, we're trying to increase the amount of energy leaving the planet. And the way we do that is by sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and this has been the darling of a lot of industries for quite a while. Um, there are a lot of people, and I've, I have a friend actually who works for a very large bank in the UK who was just like, how bad can it really be? Which This carbon capture thing will just catch up and we'll be able to use it. And I, I, tell, I told him what I'm probably going to tell you now, um, which is that there are a lot of problems with this. Can we do it? Yes. Similar with solar radiation management, this is technology that's been proven. There are various plants around the world that are capturing thousands of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere it is important to remember however that thousands of tons is peanuts compared to the scale of the problem we're facing last year emissions of carbon dioxide and i think it's i think it's technically carbon dioxide equivalent were 36.8 billion tons so we're looking at a problem that's millions of times bigger than the scale of the solution at present Mm. not to say that it couldn't be scaled up to the scale of you know sucking that much carbon out of the atmosphere, but at present we 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 really shouldn't be getting carried away. The problem with that is that at the moment I, I looked up a figure before we we had this conversation. The current cheapest way to suck CO two of the atmosphere that I could find was thirty nine dollars per ton, which is significantly lower than it was in the past. I think I made a video about this like five years ago, and at that point it was over a hundred dollars. Um, but if you do a quick bit of maths. If you use that method of capture at that price, which obviously it would be cheaper at scale, sure, but let's just, this is the figure we've got to work with. If you were to capture 36.8 billion tons at $39 per ton, you're looking at a bill of $1.4 trillion a year, which is kind of an incomprehensible amount of money. So if you want to put that in perspective, the International Space Station cost $150 billion. So Quite the cost. A few of them. So the cost of. Staying still, so just not adding anything extra to the atmosphere at this mm. level, so not even accounting for the fact that the economy will grow and this is not the, the peak of emissions, is the same as building a new international space station every 39 days for an entire year. And that's the most expensive individual object ever created, just, just mm. to kind of hammer that home. So again, that's not a perfect like economic analysis obviously there's a whole bunch of assumptions that are going into that but the point is it's an incredibly expensive project that would be organized internationally and internationally of course there's a huge history of people agreeing to spending lots of money on things for the environment um and frankly that money could be used better pretty much anywhere else it makes when i was doing like a pros and cons list of of like heat pumps i wrote down expensive upfront but cheaper in the long term. 
But that figure makes heat pumps sound, make, makes the fact that heat pumps can sometimes be sort of 1500, no, what, like 15 grand. Yeah. Makes that sound quite cheap suddenly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very, very expensive solution. The I'm reason trying. that people like to put this forward, and it's always very similar people who will always do this, is always a very tech bro crowd that puts this forward. A, it's a technological solution, and it's this idea of, we have the technology to fix this problem because we're we're humankind and we distinguish ourselves from nature by tech. And the better our tech, the more control we have. And talk to Abby Thorne about all of that. Um, but this is basically a license to keep emitting and to keep doing things the way that we currently are. Because if you tell people, oh yeah, sure, we're burning, we're emitting all of this carbon into the atmosphere, but we'll capture it again. It won't be a problem. Like you're not actually fundamentally changing the problem and similar to global solar radiation management you are not addressing the root cause now i will say that people who advocate for this as a solution don't say do this in isolation they will almost always say yeah you need to do this and fix the problem at the same time which i think they're right to if you if you if you're saying a priori we're going to use this technology so we can prop up the current way the economy works sure you do also need to do that but i don't think that is the right way to fix the problem with the money that we have i think that's a um, a kind of a white elephant technology. The mm. other thing is that um, by not addressing the root cause with this as a solution, with this use of the money, there are other um, issues that you're not fixing. So for example, climate change is also a health crisis. Like emissions from fossil fuel burning kill about 7 million people every year with air pollution. And so by not addressing the root cause of just stopping burning that stuff, you're not fixing that problem at its source. You're just sort of dealing with it further down the line after people have breathed this stuff in. You're not fixing the fact that we're adding a colossal amount of carbon to the world's oceans and the oceans are acidifying. One of the things that scares me most about the climate crisis when you're looking at the scale of 100 or 200 years is the fact that it's entirely possible by the year, say, 2200, that the global ecosystem could have collapsed because the oceans got too acidic. And you're not changing the fact that you're putting this carbon up in the air and it is going to be absorbed into the oceans. Sure, you're absorbing some of the atmosphere, yeah, but you're way better off just not emitting it in the first place and spending your money doing that. Um, and I suppose you could argue there's a political kind of socio sociological aspect of this, which is that by propping up the way that industries are currently working and just giving them time to adapt and do things in a, in a more low-carbon way, you're missing out on an opportunity to redistribute power systems in the world. And instead of focusing on, for example, distributed renewables, which takes the uh, power, literally the political power away from power generation companies and fossil fuel companies and in, actually distributing it. Do you mean like, if I have solar panels on top of my house, is that what you mean like that? that yeah. I'm... So distributed renewables means that rather than like a big solar uh, farm, but, and, mm. and it's, a, it's something that would become particularly relevant in um, the global South in, in places that have not yet been electrified or almost certainly yeah, going to be yeah. electrified by distributed renewables um and doing so you're giving those communities control over it you're giving these communities some power over where they get whether they get their electricity from um and so by propping up the way that power is currently generated in both senses of the word you're missing out on this on the climate crisis as being a kind of a, a social catalyst because there's mm -hmm. so many things wrapped up in this it's not just an environmental issue it is and it's not just a health issue it's a social issue it's a, it's the issue with how we as humans interact with each other how we interact with the environment and how we interact with the way that we produce energy um and by using carbon capture as a lot of proponents want to use it i think you're missing out on a huge opportunity to enact social positive social change I will say, as a caveat, that well, there's sort of two caveats. One is that 
I think a lot of people wouldn't say we're only going to use this. You know, the, the, a lot of people would say this needs to be used in conjunction with other technologies. If so, fine. I still don't think it's the best use for the money. I think you're better off spending it elsewhere. Um, and actually, a lot of the IPCC's projections, when they say this is how we can get to keep warming to a certain level, they assume negative emissions, which half of which is carbon capture like this. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people do consider this as a fundamental technology. I just think it's very important to stress it's not the solution. This is like, you know, it's aftercare after surgery. This is paracetamol. It's not fixing your broken leg at the end of the day. And the other thing is that there are certain industries where carbon capture is going to be important. Um, this isn't direct air carbon capture. This is carbon capture at source. So industries like cement, for example, off the top of my head, I think cement is something like 6%, something of the, it's of the order of about 5% of global emissions of carbon dioxide come from just making cement. Because the chemical yeah. process that you use to make cement, it's a just chemical process that has a CO2 term on the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to keep making cement, which we do, it's the second most traded commodity in the world after water, um, you've got to capture that carbon somehow. And I've, I actually did a video last year um, with a company called Lilac that have developed a technology that is basically you retrofit all these cement plants with a thing, it captures the carbon and you can pump it into the ground. That's a good use of carbon capture. And I think that's that's something that maybe gets unfairly bundled in sometimes. There are mm. other applications in places like steel. I think there are some areas of agriculture where possibly you could argue it. But direct air carbon capture is on the white elephant end of the scale for me. Is there is there any way you can use that in certain places? So so often the examples I've seen, because I mean, there's there's not very many facilities in the world doing it, I don't think. But the ones I've yeah. seen have always been quite rural or sort of, you know, somewhere where they're not causing any problems. Can you, okay, maybe I'm coming up with some sort of mad invention, but <laughs> could you do a little one that goes on an exhaust pipe? Is that, or, or does that not work? It Does it just take a lot of space with that? Would you just have a another car on the back of your car? I think the honest answer is, I don't know. Small ones do exist. For example, the Apollo craft had CO2 scrubbers that would absorb CO2 from the air. That was a chemical process and you had filters that you would change out. So small ones do mm -hmm. exist. The kinds of ones that work with direct air capture use a lot of electricity. Um, and so I, the one that I'm thinking of, um, I can't remember the name of the project, but it's in Iceland. There's a, there's a big mm -hmm. one that they're building in Iceland. And I think that's using geothermal as like, look, you can do this with clean energy and because that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. If you're going to suck the stuff out of the air, you better not be putting more of it into the air by generating electricity. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think as my level of understanding of the technology, it has to be kind of on large scales in order to work with 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 the technology that's being developed. I'll put I'll put Tom's mini carbon capture device on my maybe list then. Um, <laughs> uh, it's my my sort of dragon's den pitch. Uh, okay, so we're we're gonna we're gonna come back to distributed stuff. So. Uh, direct air carbon capture. Where's that going on our thing that no one can see? It's not. It's not as bad as solar radiation management. Of of geoengineering, it's the better of the two, but it's still on that end of the spectrum. Okay. I mean, I, I no one no one can see my little scale. I'll I'll take it even I can't see it, dear, dear reader. I'm no. I am on a call with Tom, and I can't see this. You you like usually there is things that people who are only listening cannot see, and I describe them. This is something that even people who are watching also <laughs> cannot see. Um, maybe one day we'll have the budget for two cameras. Um, oh, uh, professional stuff that would be, wouldn't it? Um, okay. Uh, from from a few that maybe people don't know a huge amount, to maybe one that people feel like they know something about. Um, solar energy. 
is my yeah. next my next one. So Solar is I, I don't know, depending on who you ask, Solar is either the poster child or kind of the white elephant of the climate movement. Um, I think certainly when I read my comments for my sins, there's a lot of stuff that talks about how renewables and solar in particular, they're too expensive. They are too intermittent. We can't rely on them to use, to, to generate our energy. And um, there's a lot of stuff that people don't seem to understand about what's happening with solar now. This isn't like a future technology. It's stuff that's happening now. Like, I believe it was last year, it might have been this year, the International Energy Association announced that solar is now the cheapest way to generate energy that has ever been. Like it's mm. it's cheaper to, to run than uh, gas, than nuclear, than coal, anything. It's literally the cheapest. I think it's uh, that there's obviously different ways you can account for this, but even accounting for the intermittency and the fact that obviously the sun's only there half the time, it works out at something like $60 per megawatt hour, whereas gas is about $80, I think, per megawatt hour. So it is the cheapest way to generate electricity. And if you look at a, a, a price history of how much it costs to generate a megawatt hour of electricity with solar, it's an exponential decrease. And a lot of people don't seem to realize um, that was because of there was a key investment. There was like a key policy that Germany put in place a couple of decades ago. But it's mostly China. Like a lot of people uh, say, well, why should I do something about climate change when China's not doing anything? They're, they're building two coal-fired power stations a week. Yes, they are still building coal-fired power stations, but they've also made solar power the cheapest way we could ever hope to generate electricity. Um, and there are, I'll, I'll circle back to China in, in a second, but basically it is incredibly cheap. Um, the IEA also expects that it, I think it's within five years, it will become the dominant way that the world is generating electricity. At the moment, it's about 15% of all power capacity. By 2028, it's going to be about 25%, and it's going to be, have beaten out coal. And this is just based on like current rates of installations. This isn't based on you know people's pledges or anything. This is literally the current trajectory. So the people who are building grids are, and the people who know, frankly, way more about it this than I do, are incredibly confident that this is the way to go. Um, and, you know, in case I need to say this, it's incredibly low carbon. You're obviously not burning fossil fuels by by running the panels. Yes, it's energy intense to produce the panels, but a comparison of the life cycle emissions of it per kilowatt hour, it's minuscule. It's You need a different scale to see it when compared to fossil fuels. It's a frequent talking point amongst people who are skeptical of, of things like solar or electric vehicles, actually, is this idea of the life cycle. And, oh, surely it's more energy intense to make these things. But people have done that analysis and and it's mm. not we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't the case um but yeah basically solar is kind of the way that we're going to be powering the planet for the foreseeable future like in in my head and i'm sure in engineers heads people will say that yeah fusion is going to take over eventually in 50 years time we've been saying that for the past 50 years um but you know for now the technology that's best suited to generating electricity is solar obviously caveat on that it's intermittent the sun doesn't shine all the time um, you have to pair it with storage you have to pair uh, grids that have lots of solar built into them uh, you have to interconnect those grids with other sources of electricity um, mm. and that's actually one of the uh, a significant engineering roadblock as i understand it is actually building the grid interconnectors that can handle the level of power transfer that we're talking about when you're actually connecting up all of europe for example um, and you have to pair it with 
what are called firm low carbon sources of power. So you have to pair it with something that has um, inertia, something that is going to generate electricity and you can change, but only slowly so that you can keep the system stable. This, I, again, not my specialism, but this concept of baseload, which people still seem to talk about, is, is mm. apparently mm. outdated. People seem to prefer this idea of firm generation. Um, and that's the, the most obvious example and the version that people on Reddit love to talk about is nuclear power. That's a, a great example of firm low carbon power. It's not the only one. If you, for some reason, decide that you don't want to use nuclear power, geothermal exists. We have uh, tidal barrages. There are other less, um, certainly less well used at the moment forms of firm generation. I was going to say, if, uh, if this isn't too much of a kind of engineering question, is there anything in particular? Because I know in the UK we have a lot of wind, don't we? That sort of yeah. But um, but is and and we have sort of some tidal stuff, I believe. Is there anything in particular that makes solar uh, just so much better than those other? Is it is it just that it's usable in more locations? Is it is it because I guess wind is good in the UK because we're an island and therefore have a lot of more wind, I guess. I might not be, yeah, the might UK be is like one of the global capitals for for wind. <laughs> basically it's actually like that i i can't i wish i had this figure to hand but there is a figure that shows you sort of the potential for generating electricity from wind power and it's like a a, a huge epicenter over the, the over the british isles um i think the honest answer is that the energy density is just higher for solar like the amount of energy that's mm. coming in from the sun is you know the order of a kilowatt per square meter like that's roughly you know give or take different days different clouds whatever it's coming in from the sun to generate that from the wind, you have to basically have a wind turbine of a certain size. And the, the larger mm. the radius of your wind turbine's blades, the more energy you're going to collect. And it just comes down to how, how much sunlight is coming in versus how much kinetic energy air can have. Um, yeah, and yeah. as you say, I think it is really an engineering question, but I think that's what it fundamentally comes down to. Hmm, that's That feels... I did say I wanted the last couple to be a bit more... Uh positive and that like hearing about the kind of trajectory of the cost of generating solar pa uh, power is uh is good so this is going very much on our goods our it's good very side. much on the high end it's 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 not flawless um i mentioned about china earlier there is like there are concerns around how you source rare earth minerals like lithium, for example, or, or, or mm. you know various minerals that go into solar panels. Lithium is normally for storage. Um, China specifically controls something like 80%, 70, 80% of the world's production of um, like lithium ion cells and various key components. Like they, they have really quite a significant monopoly on this technology, which makes sense because of the amount of money they have plowed into it and a colossal amount of storage that they're adding to the Chinese grid. Um, but that is like a worry, that this idea that there is one country that kind of has a monopoly on how we generate electricity. Um, there are also concerns around how those minerals are extracted. Like, I think China actually only produces like 10, 15% of the world's lithium. It's actually most mostly from other places. But the conditions that people uh, suffer through in order to get the lithium can be absolutely horrific. And because mm. they're in the global south, they don't really get very much attention um and so if we're going to base the global economy which is based on energy on this technology and so these minerals that's an issue that absolutely has to be dealt with and as i said earlier you know the, the climate crisis isn't just one thing it's kind of everything all at mm -hmm. once that's something that you absolutely have to address so it's not uniformly positive but it's way way up on the 
it's the return of the king end of the the scale of climate solutions feels like one we sort of take take for granted a bit as well maybe uh compared yeah. to some of the uh, it's not the, sexy is the thing it doesn't have like, the drama uh, of planes spraying stuff into the air no um you know i i think a lot of my job trying to get people to care about different systems in the earth's atmosphere and about different parts of climate is that a lot of it isn't sexy like refrigerants mm-hmm. aren't sexy and it's trying to make them interesting and like actually make people realize that you know just because you haven't thought of this and it's not obvious it can be an enormous impact and solar is mm. just it's a panel it just sits there you know like yeah. you know poke with stick come on do something interesting and yeah if you're doing something interesting it just doesn't look like it it doesn't even have the whir of a of a wind turbine but but no. still it's 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 you know powering on in silence um okay our very last our very last card is i don't even know if you can see these on the on the camera uh restore my, my hammering is terrible so probably not restoring tropical uh forests is the last one the rest yeah, of them, so- at least a little bit techy and this one is very much plants not techy this is this is the opposite yeah um perhaps an obvious thing to say and maybe not something that everybody has thought about i suppose is that if you want to suck carbon dioxide out of the air there's an amazing invention that already does that. And it's called a tree um, and, and other elements of the UK system that, that photosynthesize and draw carbon out of the atmosphere. And um, the idea of rewilding tropical rainforests is uh, something that, again, to mention them, has been brought out by Project Drawdown. Um, they've done analysis where I, I brought up the figures earlier. Um, if you reforested about half of the land that is suitable to do so, that has been deforested um, previously. If you reforested about half of that, which is 160 million hectares, you'd sequester about 54 gigatons of carbon dioxide by 2050. So that is about not quite two years worth of current emissions that is very cheap to do and has huge numbers of other benefits because you're restoring an ecosystem that has been absolutely mangled by humanity. Um, once again, it's all of these problems all wrapped up together. And one of the, the what I think arguably the problem that worries me the most is biodiversity and the fact that we are not making enough of the fact that we are living through and causing the next mass extinction in the history of Earth. Like the levels of species reduction that we are currently observing is the same level that we saw in like the Permian mass extinction and the, the extinction that killed the dinosaurs. But we're seeing it over a very compressed timeline, which still biological processes, evolutionary processes operate on really long time scales. So it's not dramatic, but it's happening. And one of the main reasons it's happening is because we're destroying habitats. And one of the major habitats that we are destroying is tropical rainforests. So by replanting them, you not only are sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, you are repairing the life support system that the earth has in place. Because, you know, we think of ourselves as separate from nature, There's especially in, in, in urban areas in the West, like we both live in. Um, we think of ourselves as just being in another world, and we're not. If nature goes down, it's bringing us with it. Not Humans wouldn't go extinct, but, the, you know, the life as we know it would. Um, and I think we are way too insulated from that fact. Um, there's this concept in um, science communication uh, called science capital, which is like how into science you are. And, you know, the, the idea of science communication is kind of to bring your science capital up and to make you feel more engaged with science. And I think there's a lot to be said for a, a similar idea called nature capital, which is how engaged mm-hmm. with nature do you feel? And it, a lot of people are nature capital 
are in nature capital poverty. Like they don't have any interactions with nature. They don't feel any kind of connection to it. And yet we are so dependent on the system of the global ecosystem to support us. So by, yeah. by, yeah, by planting tropical forests, you have all of these benefits of making people feel more connected with nature. You're sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and you are restoring these habitats that will hopefully prevent, you know, a lot of biodiversity being lost. That is, is, is a horrible thing, quite apart from, you know, the fact that it impacts us in terms of food production, and everything like that. You are losing these species of kind of miraculous animals that you're never going to mm-hmm. see again. The idea of saying to your grandkids, like, oh, we used to have tigers. They were these amazing big cats. And, you know, here are pictures yeah. of them, but they're all gone now, you know. And yeah. But that's happening every single day with thousands of species across the world. And, you know, if we don't stop that, we're going to be living on a very, very poor planet. And my, like my understanding is that restoring it, the, like the restoration process is actually relatively quick. Like if, if, if yeah, like the tropical forests are quite, um resilient and that if you start either you know saying that this bit of land which once was forest and has been cut down to make farms and just go we're gonna stop using that for um agriculture now um and especially if you sort of intervene maybe and decide to um you know plant some native um uh you know trees there to give it a bit of a boost that actually it can be periods of sort of one or two decades that you've that it's sprung yeah. back where it was before. There's the, there's the danger of doing something as monoculture where you just plant this one type of tree and then mm. suddenly it's like a plantation. Like it has to be done in a sensible way. But yeah, like reforesting efforts, rewilding efforts work. They're not complicated. They're not even that expensive, really. It just requires you to actually do them and protect the land that they're on. And this is the other half of the the, the CO2 sequestering you know, we, uh, issue. When we're talking about direct air carbon capture, why not do it this way? And this is something that climate scientists have been saying for quite a while, and lots of analysis has been performed. You know, some fanciful stuff like we could we could fix climate change in quotation marks if we just you know rewilded the the Sahara, if we just planted lots of trees in the Sahara. And you know that's that's not going to happen. That's like a engineer's pipe dream. But this just re- restoring the stuff that we've already lost is very very much real, and it's something that like. Mm. Again, I'm, I'm making reference to my comments, which I know I shouldn't be reading because it's terrible for my mental health. But I can um, only imagine how bad your YouTube comments are. It's going through, and like I have a very simple policy, which is that if you are spreading misinformation, you're shadow banned. I will, you know, mm. hide user from channel. And recently, I've had some shorts that have been kind of blowing up. It's felt like that scene in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Two where Yondu just starts murdering everyone uh, with Rocket in the center of the ship. That's what it feels like going into my comment section at the moment. It's just like, cool, ban, 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 ban. Um, and like, but, but what I do, you do see in these things is like, oh, why haven't scientists thought of this? You know, why haven't scientists thought it could be the sun or it might not be humans or why don't we just plant more trees? And it's like, we have been saying this for decades. <laughs> the conversation around climate solutions has just been hijacked by different groups of people who want to do things in a very technologically centered way. Mm. And just as a general PSA for people who, if you if you think you've thought about something about you know climate, fantastic that you're thinking about it, but you do need to understand that this is a, a an issue that has been anthropogenic climate change specifically we've been thinking about for nearly 200 years and if you want a level of detail that um that goes into how we think about this there was a paper a couple of years ago where they had reconstructed how warm oceans were 
uh, historically by uh, ships that would go uh, and and take measurements every day of you know water depth, water temperature, and stuff like that. And that was a data set that people used to, for, for historical ocean temperatures. But they realized in this paper that actually, if you the way that they did this was taking a bucket, lowering it off the side of the ship, dragging water up, hauling it up, and then taking the temperature of it. And by doing that, the temperature of the water is probably decreased by a few tenths of a degree. And so they went back and modified the data set to account for the evaporation and the radiative cooling of water mm. in a bucket traveling a couple of meters. And that's the level of precision that we're talking about when we're talking about how well we understand the climate system. And when we're talking about solutions, we have been talking about this obvious stuff for a very long time. It's not the scientists who haven't been talking about this or pushing for this. It's the mm. way that the conversation has been framed by especially politicians and especially uh, people who control large media outlets. And it's uh, it's something that's been bugging me a lot recently. I got on my high horse with this because it's um, it's been getting me down seeing all of this in the comments. And I, I, I'm glad that we talked about uh, afforestation in this because it's a simple technology. We've known about it for millennia. We know it works. Just fucking do it. <laughs> I think I went to, and I, I don't think I'm misremembering this, but ages ago I went to the Science Museum in London and they sort of very controversially had done a project with Shell, which yes. um, uh, which, which I, I only learned about the facts and then sort of reflected on it and was like, oh yeah, that was a bit odd. Because um, partway round you got through it and it was, I think it was talking about direct air carbon capture uh, and it was describing it as kind of technological trees where you do yeah. just go, we we have trees. we've got trees at home. Trees, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got we've got trees at home. <laughs> they, the planet sort of came with some. Um, so restoring tropical forest is very much going on our our good end. We would like that. It's the good end, and I, I don't want to say it's an easy win. Obviously, there's complicated stuff to do there with indigenous populations and how you use the land and how you protect it. But mm. I think it's about as close to an easy win as you can get in climate. Hmm. Mm. Well, thank you, Simon. This has been this has been uh, very, very uh, enlightening. Um, uh, I'm sorry that I know, talked at you for I so thought, long. I, I, no, I thought I, I, you know, I put in the work with the little cards I made. You brought um, knowledge. <laughs> you did. You really did. Uh, you you brought being incredibly clever. Um, if people want to go and check out your channel, I would I would particularly recommend your recent video about. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed your electric bike trying to get to London, <laughs> just, you know, to sort of my misadventures, enjoy, enjoy the pain. But I think you're, you're, um, you know, we've talked a lot about transport over the last however long this episode ends up being. Um, and the way you broke down kind of, you know, different radiuses of different and like how to, you know, what, what does the future of transport look like on a really local level, but then on a national level. And um, I'd, I'd particularly recommend that episode because I think it, hooks on from from this but if people want to find sort of you and your output where would they where where can they find you on the on the internet well my primary output is on uh my youtube channel if you just search simon clark on youtube because my username i made when i was 18 and it's unpronounceable uh simon ox for fizz um so i make i make videos that go on there i also stream on twitch at dr simon clark uh, and i'm on instagram and x if that's still a thing by the time this episode comes out and threads uh, as at Simon Ox for fizz. Um, and once again, I do just want to uh, stress that if you 
want to learn more about climate solutions and compare them, um, Project Drawdown is the website that you you want to have a look at, which is, I think, just drawdown.org. And that's that's got far more information than we could possibly ever fit into a podcast. Excellent. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you so, so much once again for joining me, Simon. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for having me.